menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. The 1970s, a period seemingly unrivaled in its pursuit of excess, revelry, and oat glam fashion that clung to the wearer's body as it swayed to the sounds of disco music at the famed Studio 54. Open for just 33 months, the nightclub is nevertheless synonymous with the era, one reigned over by a legion of fashion designers such as Halston, Terry Mugler, Yves Saint Laurent, Karl Lagerfeld, and Kenzo. And what do all of these designers have in common, you may ask? Or perhaps the question is rather who? And the answer is today's guest, the inimitable Pat Cleveland. April, what better way to start season five of Dress than with one of our all-time favorite dress guests? Yes, exactly. Because last time Pat was on the show, we learned all about her early life and her career as a model in fashion, including her work as a teenager, actually, for the Ebony Fashion Fair during the 1960s. I mean, she was dating Muhammad Ali at that point. Briefly, yes. (laughs) mind-blowing. But we learned less about the era when she actually skyrocketed to international model stardom in the 1970s. And honestly, this is an era that we haven't touched so much on the show on and really where our first interview with Pat left off. So if you haven't listened to Pat's first episode with us and you want a fuller story of her incredible career, you can tune back into that. But where we're going to pick up today is 1970, and it's the year that Pat first appeared in Vogue twice. First as a designer, modeling one of her own designs, and then later she appeared a couple months later in Vogue with a Stephen Bros photo shoot where she was modeling some of his designs in Central Park. And it's very cool because we actually have some of these original photos in our collection at FIT that Stephen gave us as part of his archive. 
yeah, really wonderful, colorful, fun, joyful photographs that really are so emblematic of Pat's career and what she brings to fashion. 1970 was also the year she appeared in the first issue of Essence magazine and the year that she signed with the Wilhelmina Modeling Agency. I also believe that was the year that she met both Halston and Antonio Lopez. So as you can tell, dress listeners, this year really set the tone for what would prove a very exciting, very successful decade in Pat's career. And you would be hard-pressed not to place Pat in the most momentous and exciting occasions and her hotspots of the era. She was an international jet setter. She modeled in Japan, Paris, Kenya, New York City. And then, of course, you could always find her dancing on the catwalk and in the club, be it the Battle of Versailles or Studio 54. Pat was there. Working with Era's top fashion designers and photographers and befriending its great artists and tastemakers, Pat was herself a very much defining force of what made this era a cultural touchstone. And we still reference this era in awe today for what it did for fashion, and especially American fashion. So prepare to be transported, dress listeners, because Pat is an excellent storyteller, and we are so pleased to welcome her back on the show. Thank you for joining us again, Pat. Pat, I'd like to offer you a warm welcome back to Dressed. Thank you for having me there in your beautiful splendid closet dressed (laughs) up, dressed for the day, summertime. (laughs) And thank you to Mark for putting us back in touch. He's the one who kind of got the wheels spinning on this one. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. (laughs) And last time we spoke to you about your memoir, Walking with the Muses, we really focused on the first half of the book, which was about the aspects of your early modeling career with the Ebony Fashion Fair of the 1960s. But it was really in the 1970s when you skyrocketed to model stardom. And this is such an exciting era in fashion and one in which you inarguably helped to shape and define Everything happened in 1970s. Um, What was the beginning of this next phase in your career like? Because I love it in the book, you say that with my new name, because Wilhelmina renamed you Pat from Patricia, my new agency and my new sexual freedom because of the birth control pill, you felt poised to win going into the 70s. (laughs) Being a young lady and growing up, you know, like I was born in 1950. I'm 71 now. And when I was born, you know, ladies wore girdles and bras and they were very sort of like, you know, we didn't have a lot of freedoms and you didn't even wear pants. They called them slacks or pedal pushes or capris. And, you know, the style was like undergarments and gloves. And I grew up with this sort of like, you know, cross your legs a certain way and sit a certain way in the etiquette of ladies. And then the 60s came and then whoop, miniskirt way up to the top (laughs) of your thigh and you still had to sit or bend a certain way. And, you know, all of this etiquette that you have to have, oh, early 70s, my God, that all went out the window. It was like the birth control, the freedom, the music, the undergarments left completely. It was like underneath that matte jersey was nothing but your birthday suit. You know, you already had the perfect undergarments. And especially if you were young, everything just clinged in the way it should. You know, there was a separation between what older women wore and what, you know, younger women wore, as there are sometimes now, but I don't think so much now that there's a separation. You can wear anything you want, you know, as long as you're alive and you're enjoying it. You know what I mean? But the question about this situation with coming out with these wonderful people, what happened was uh, when I met Antonio Lopez and he uh, sketched me, I realized there was a bigger world for me um, in another part of the world. 
because he was ready to go to Paris and he wanted to take me along. And you met him at Vogue, right? Yeah, I was up in Vogue working with Dinah Freeland in 1970. And um, it was in the winter. It was going towards autumn and, and everything. And he came in with his friends and they were dressed. He had a little entourage of very beautiful boys. Oh, my gosh. If you see beautiful boys walk into a room and you're young, you say, oh, this is the jackpot. I made it. <laughs> what was this? I didn't even have to search. And he came and he was so divinely wonderful, charismatic, open heart, big, wonderful. Hey, girl. And then we started to work like for a couple of weeks sitting there in that green room up at Vogue at the Condé Nast and uh, near the Grand Central Station, which is the famous station in New York. And he um, he said, you're going to when, when you you're going to come to Europe. And uh, I was encouraged by Stephen Burroughs. You know, and everybody, you have to go over there and be in all the magazines. So the question, I lost the question, but I'm going back right into what needs to be said is that, you know, people make such a big difference, like the right people at the right time. And for me, that was the right time because I had accomplished everything. I could go as far as I could. I had a wonderful agent called Wilhelmina and she was Dutch and she was the top model of Vogue for like, to almost two decades and she was on every cover of Vogue and she was the most divine, beautiful lady. And she became my agent and she gave me so much courage. And she said to me, you, it's time for you to fly. It was like, she had taught me that, yes, you are something that somebody might need to, you know, help enhance their work and help you could be, you could be useful as a muse to them. And so I got my portfolio together and I had already just, suddenly got on the level where I was working with Irving Penn and Avedon. And I had been photographed, as you said, first as a designer, but I was lucky that somehow I was up at Vogue. And they said, now you have to, we want you to go over to uh, Irving Penn to do this shooting. And he was amazing. I mean, I was a person who moved, fluttered around like a hummingbird. I was here and there and up and down. And and Mr. Penn taught me to sit still and use my eyes to look around. And he taught me a lot of things about how to pose in front of a camera. And I was working with Charles Tracy, who was another wonderful photographer and hero. And I worked with all the top photographers in America, but I still didn't get enough pages for my book. At that time, you had a portfolio and you need a lot of pages and, you know, modeling it doesn't pay really. It's like you're an artist and you're, you, what you eat and what you do is your pay. You know, your pay is to be able to wear those clothes and to be with those people. And you don't have like a lot of money or anything, but you have a lot of abundance and everything else, like lifestyle. And, you know, and sometimes it's so wonderful. Your feet don't even touch the floor. Your shoes are so new, wow. you know, and it, it's just a wonderful experience to be with artists because they take something as raw as me and they they make a beautiful Christmas tree out of me for a minute. <laughs> and then after that, you know, you have to go wait till the next season or something, you know, it's kind of like that. <laughs> and so Wilhelmina sent you to Europe, right? That's when you decided to go to Europe at the beginning, I think in 1971, and you lived in this tiny little apartment in Paris with Juan and Antonio Lopez and your fellow model, Donna Jordan. And I love it in the memoirs because you're talking about how Juan and Antonio slept on the floor and you and Donna slept foot 
two head in a tiny little bed in Paris. <laughs> matter as long as we were in Paris, <laughs> around the corner was a place where we can get our croissants and our coffee in the morning and our Abisson drink in the afternoon, which you're not supposed to have. Oh boy, Van Gogh. And so we were there in that little room. And you know that that coat that looks like it's the sleeping bag with all the feathers in it? Antonio used to wear bombers and things that sailors used to wear, like, you know, big bomber coats and stuff. Mm -hmm. at, at one point, we didn't have coats. So we would take our sleeping bags and wear those as coats in the evening. And it became the newest trend. It was like, <laughs> we had these red sleeping bags wrapped around us. And it became like Kamali. And everybody's been doing that coat for ages now, you know? Well, one of my favorite images of you is in that Charles James, like, early 1937 puff coat. It's the most incredible image of you. And it's so amazing that you mentioned that just because he was doing this like puff coat in the 30s that never caught on. And here you are in the 70s, like making it happen. Yeah, it was just amazing to work with Charles James because he was a catalyst for many designers because he was couture in America. And I worked for him thanks to Antonio Lopez was doing this, this book of his. And so I was at the Chelsea Hotel I was up there with him for like months wearing those clothes and getting those theories and posing very serenely with him in a room that he lived in with. It was just packed full of mannequins that to work on the croquis with all of his dresses. And he actually lived in this room with all these patterns. And it was just packed full. It was like, oh my God, such a treasure. And there was very little room for us to work. There was a table that I stood on and Antonio was at the foot of the table drawing me. And that's how I got to know Charles James. And he was, you know, someone who inspired Halston was one of his students. And oh my God, there was so much history there. You know, to be able to work with people, you you just don't know who they are. And, and, some, and I went to art school and I went to study fashion design and to actually work with someone like Charles James and Madame Gray. And, you know, I just missed Chanel by a few days. She passed away when I was going to go up and work with her in Paris. So um, it was just important, I guess, you know, for me as an art student to know exactly the feelings of these people. And, you know, it just kind of lives in my heart, the, all the little things that they told me. Um, it just makes it so much realer, more real to be able to have a life that is artistic because you realize these are human beings that really put their energy into something that gave them pleasure. So I learned also from Manning Obergon, who was Diana Vreeland's illustrator up at Vogue. I learned living well is the best revenge. <laughs> <laughs> no, these people knew how to live very well because they lived in a love and a passion and they love passionate people around them. So it was very, very full of scintillating energy, you know, to be with them. Yeah. And I was going to say collectively, all of you together in this period just made this all happen. Like the energy that everyone brought combined with the music and the fashion and the dancing. That's what makes the 70s so exciting and, and a period that we look back on today and still kind of wish we were there like you were. And like I said, you were at the absolute center of it. Oh, my goodness, this 70s. Oh my God, it's so great to grow up and be 20 in the 70s, like a whole <laughs> decade being in your 20s. And I was like 20 and it was like, oh, 1970, let me out. I need to come out with all these beautiful people I just met. 
you know, Halston and Stephen Burroughs in the last part of 68, 69. And, and I met Giorgio de Sant'Angelo and I started doing pictures in New York. And I thought, okay, now I'm a model for real in New York. And I'm meeting these designers and they're directing me and I'm just 20 years old and already I'm being photographed for German magazines and English magazines and, you know, nothing so much in my country. But then suddenly, you know, I was like up in Vogue with Diana Vreeland working with Antonio Lopez and Manning Obergon and Joel Schumacher and Carrie Donovan. And oh, my God, I mean, Mrs. Vreeland just sent me over to meet. Stephen Burroughs, the designer, and he put me in all of these colorful clothes. And suddenly there were these tribes of designers who had their friends and we all would just like work really hard. Nine to five. That's when the work day was nine <laughs> to five. But if you were in fashion, your work week was nine to five Monday till uh, Friday afternoon. And then Friday afternoon was the time to party. And I'm talking about the 1970s was party time because there was all kinds of music, R&B, there was rock and roll, there was country, there was all kinds of jazz, every kind of music you can think of. Everybody was so young, Latin, uh, salsa and all kinds of good stuff to dance to. So everybody wanted to go out and dance. And all of these tribes of designers like the Giorgio group, then there was the Halston and Stephen Burroughs group. They all had like the little, you know, entourage of people. And so then at the end of the week, there was a place called Fire Island. And it's like a magical island where it's like no cars and only designers, architects and interior designers and famous people like Tennessee Williams and and all these wonderful writers, um, Gore Vida. Who else was there? Oh, the one who wrote Funny Face. Oh, my gosh. He was there. All these wonderful people. And on the weekends, what would happen is you throw all your fabulous clothes into a tiny little backpack and you go off on this boat to the island or a water plane. And when you land there, especially if you go on the boat, it's more fun because there's a place called the Botel. And everybody would be dancing, all the designers and friends. And and it was a very gay island and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and we got there, everybody would like redecorate their houses for the weekend. Like you'd have a theme, like the white theme or the red theme. And there'd be a red party or a white party. And you'd have to dress according to the rules, the Egyptian party. One time I went to a party on Fire Island and the boys like Richard Bernstein, the illustrator, dressed me up as the dancer who uh, danced the seven bales of the dance and the boys wrapped me up in a rug. And then when I got to the party, they rolled the rug out and they came out dancing and oh my gosh. And of course the boardwalk is where at night everybody would pass each other and the scent was musk. All everybody wore that scent musk so you could smell it in the air. And it was just divine. It was like a dream. And the city Oh, my God, there was nothing but stretch limos and party nights at different clubs. There were so many clubs. This is pre-Club 54. This is early 70s. So, you know, it was a lot of competition between the magazines like Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, and they all wanted to be, our magazine is the best. And so I was working with a lot of people, and I worked with Antonio Lopez, who was the illustrator, and, you know, up until 1971, I was in New York permanently 
But then in the 70s, you know, you talk about New York is one hot spot, you know, and very tiny 27 miles long island that in that one space on 57th Street, the luxury street with Tiffany's and and uh, there was Henry Bindel's and, you know, there was Bonwit Taylor's and there was all of these wonderful shots where only the wealthy ladies of society went to. And well, I don't know. It was just so much to do with Halston coming up and um, having this wonderful atelier out in the middle of nowhere on 68th Street and Madison Avenue, which was at the time <laughs> who went up there and he was the first. And then suddenly now, if you go there, all the great couture houses are on Madison Avenue and 68th Street. I don't know. <laughs> you get her. And you had Elsa Peretti and Naomi Sims and Marina Schiana, these top Vogue models. And, you know, Angelica Houston would be at the house. I'm talking about the house. They called him the house of Halston, the atelier, or that's the French word, but that would be up at the studio, American way of saying. And so, you know, in the dressing rooms there, you know, all of this, oh, the Lady Getty is coming in all these society ladies and Martha Graham and, 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 you know, like, and so Andy had started his factory and in the early 70s, you know, it was about Andy Warhol and all of these sort of trashy people, you know, that people didn't <laughs> want to touch, but it was so vogue because he was such an artiste, you know, he could do anything. And then there was uh, Kansas City, which was a very famous place where people went to eat and it was like all red inside and there were all of these Andy Warhol people and Everybody went there dressed up because they hoped that maybe somebody would buy them a drink or a dinner at the bar. <laughs> and so there were a lot of hungry young people growing up in New York available to party. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you've really painted a picture for us, which is amazing. It's so wonderful to imagine this exciting period. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about some of the photographers you worked with, because you mentioned Irving Penn. You also worked with Richard Avedon, Helmut Newton, Bill Cunningham, Horace, David Bailey. I mean, everybody who was a photographer in the 70s, Pat Cleveland was shot by. Do you have any favorite or most memorable experiences from photo shoots? Well, we can mention Barry McKinley. Uh, he was an Australian redhead and he was wild and he did all of the GQ magazines and things like that. And he would take me around the world with him. And one time we went across the ocean on the Queen Elizabeth boat. We went uh, through the Rock of Gibraltar into Italy and Sicily. And then, oh my God, we were drinking white wine and stumbling around and doing pictures with all the boys and being on the ship with all of these beautiful male models. It was like, there were so many people who were envious. And I was just there dressed like the Duchess of Windsor in pearls and diamonds and evening dresses and had it surrounded by these beautiful men. And then I remember one time, um, Barry McKinley took me to Africa and we went on safari and it was so wild to be out in the Sahara, in the, de in the desert there uh, and, and in the jungle in Kenya and being with the African Maasai warriors and, and you know, being in a tent and having elephants trampling around and, and, and panthers in the night and still thinking about how you're going to get your makeup on while the Jeep is going rumbling <laughs> along and you're trying to put an eyeliner, that a straight line over your eye. And then finally, you know, doing these marvelous pictures that appeared in uh, Harper's Queen in England. And, you know, and these uh, voyages I went on, you know, sometimes I would go to the south of France with Helmut Newton to his home and we do beautiful pictures around and 
just, you know, smell the beautiful scents of the south of France. I just remember the perfumed airs. And sometimes, you know, being with Carl Lagerfeld in Saint-Tropez was, you know, he was young and we were all young and we just wanted to show how glittery and sensational life could be if you dressed up and, and you, you know, it was sort of like a performance every evening, just being able to dress up and go out and be sparkly together and excited about having dinner, you know. (laughs) And Carl dressed you up. I mean, Carl was one of the first designers you met in Paris when you lived there in, I believe, 71. And he would, I think in your memoir, you talk about him dressing you up in these incredible gowns to go out for the evening. Oh my God, just one evening, you know. I remember, you know, when I first met him, I was I was like, um, he, he was just taking care of Antonio, myself, and Donna, Jordan, and Corey, and all of us. And we were like just his buddies, and he showered us with gifts. We'd go out to the antique stores. Oh, pick anything you want, darling. And he'd buy us diamonds, and we'd have stick pins from the 1930s, and we were all so immersed in old black and white movies. And he knew Greta Garbo and Marlene Dietrich, and he was making clothes for them. And sometimes we'd have to deliver the clothes to Marlene Dietrich's house, and she'd get angry with Carlos. You're not coming over for dinner tonight because I cooked and you were late 20 minutes, and (laughs) there was so much scandal going on. And and so he would be angry with Marlene Dietrich, and so he'd give me her clothes. He'd say, well, tonight we're going to we're going to go to the uh, La Coupole. So you're going to wear Marlene Dietrich's dress tonight and we'll show her that what she's missing. <laughs> and so he would give me like these lingeries to wear that were transparent. And I'd go out and there was this one French blue multi-pleated uh, lingerie that was, it, when you wore it straight, you couldn't see through. But when you held your arms up, it was completely transparent. And I just remember going to La Capole and we were marching in. And that's the place where all the designers would meet up after the shows, the fashion week. And oh la la, everybody smoking and having their champagne. And when we walked in with our little tribe of Antonio, Donna, me, Carl, Juan, and, you know, the boys always dressed in tuxedo at night before we went out to Le Club or the Seven Club set. So we would arrive there at the La Coupole and, oh, my God, people were astonished. It was just odd because we were so elegantly dressed. And <laughs> they'd applaud when we walked in and then send us champagne to our table because one night my dress got stuck on the back of a nail and it almost came off and I lifted my arms and there I was in my G-string walking through <laughs> And it was like, bravo, bravo. And oh my gosh. And I, I just, that was my birthday. I just turned 21. So I realized I had arrived in Paris. Wow, 21 in Paris. How amazing. And I, and I always said, oh my gosh, when I'm 21, I want to be drinking champagne in Paris. And I did. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I said to everybody, please dream. <laughs> yeah, please dream. And um, I'm such a, a advocate of, of vision boards and, and putting what you want in the world out there because I truly believe that that energy um, comes back to you. So, Pat, you've mentioned Burroughs, Halston. You also worked uh, and Charles James, which I actually had no idea. I just assumed you were wearing one of his archive pieces, but of course he was um, alive in the 1970s. Yves Saint Laurent, Terry Mugler, Valentino, Zandra Rhodes, uh, Karl Lagerfeld, all these wonderful designers you worked with. And I think it's so amazing that, and I hadn't realized this before prepping for this episode, is you had this meteoric rise to success in the 70s, and it really parallels that of designers that also became your friends. So Stephen Burroughs, Kenzo, Halston, 
all rose to fashion stardom during the 70s. And I'd love if you could talk about the significance of each of these designers to your work, starting perhaps with Stephen, who I believe was one of um, the first designers you met maybe in the 60s of this 1970s entourage. Well, I was sort of searching for where do I belong and, you know, going around and trying to find a place that I fit into. And then when I met Stephen Burroughs, it was like, boom, magic, sunrise, everything opened up, rainbows appeared. And he was so uh, colorful and he had a little entourage of friends and I just seemed to fit in. And, you know, when I first met him, I went up to Henry Bendel's and his, his studio was on the top floor there. And, you know, I was still like a design student and I was like, oh my God, I'm walking into this cutting room where fabrics are like style packed and like, you know, 24 feet high zooming through the fabric. And I was so astonished. Was, that was like the first big cutting room I had ever been into. And then when I got to the door, I knocked in the door and then it was like going to visit a Wizard of Oz and something. It was like, <laughs> oh my God. And uh, smoke was coming out of the, um, from under the door, like what's in there? And they opened the door and it was just like all oh, these perfume scent of musk and perfume and smoke came out and there was Stephen standing in the middle of it. Dark <laughs> face, that room full of orchids and all sort of folksia plants hanging from the ceilings and little drawings like cartoons and color, day glow colors. And he says, oh, Miss Cleveland, get ready. We're going to dress you. And they dressed me up and we went to Central Park and we marched through the street like a colorful rainbow. And when we got there, we all photographed together for Vogue. And it was like my first friendship with a designer. And it was like our little tribe. And, you know, we just stuck together and went out to dance. And he colored me up and dressed me. He gave me wardrobe to wear. So I was able to stop sewing. <laughs> That's what I was just saying in your memoir. You're like, I no longer had to design because Stephen Burroughs was the designer you always knew you needed or always wanted to have in your life. Yeah, girl needs a designer. You can't <laughs> come every day thinking up everything, how to look your best. You know, sometimes you need a little help. That's why we need designers. Because you, there may be a part of yourself that you don't even, you can't even recognize and they bring it out of you. Just the way Halston brought things out of people, you know, like ladies who may not have had the figure to look sleek, but when he put the clothes on them, it enhanced some sort of gracefulness in them. You know what I mean? Like there's certain clothes that you wear that give you sort of a flow, you know? And what Stephen's clothes gave me was the freedom to move. You know, I was working with some Seventh Avenue designers like Bill Blass and, and Jacques Tufaux, who was the first designer I worked with in the 60s. And, you know, the clothes were more static for ladies who really needed to have that mm, cut, you know, the uh, tailored look because they were in either in politics or everything. But these clothes that Stephen and Halston, they were more flowy and you could move without all those undergarments and things, you know. And so it gave you a chance to dance through your day. And, um, you know, meeting them gave me that freedom to dress the way I really needed to dress for that time. Yeah. And I mean, designers might inspire us, but you as a model, you inspired them. You were amused to so many of these designers. And I think it's with Stephen Burroughs that you really start to develop your signature walk. So the 70s is this period of dance and movement, like you're talking about with Stephen and Halston's clothes. But you brought that movement. I mean, you were the inspiration for that movement because of how you moved in this clothing. Can you talk a little bit about that and developing that signature style? Yeah, I think Stephen Burroughs was a really good dancer. And he's such a good dancer. He, he does a 
Latin uh, salsa. He and he invented this dance. He was always inventing these dances. So when we went out to Fire Island on the weekend, we did this dance called the bump that caught on. It was just the style that he invented. And we started doing these dances. And, and before you knew it, everybody was doing this dance, you know, and there were certain terms and and and, and things like Vuzet or you're sick. Oh, how sick. And, you know, just phrases that he used that caught on. And so a lot of that style, you know, in our, between us dancing became our runway signature walk. And, and it was like sort of a mixture of dance with the old couture, you know, it wasn't just you know, a static figure moving very slowly. But, you know, the way that I first started to work in this uh, showrooms that it was a silent space with no uh, no music at all. And um, only ladies, the society and illustrators, no photography. But in the 70s, it became different. The photographers like Bill Cunningham and Barry Berenstain would come and photograph the shows. And um, there, it was very, 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 very secluded. But at the 70 point, because of the music, Stephen Burroughs and Don Finley was the person who put the music together for all the shows. So they used James Brown and Marvin Gaye and R&B and, and the, the new sounds of music that people hadn't really become familiar with, really, in these societies. And so then the movement became, what are the clothes saying with this music? And so then that style developed because of Stephen Burroughs and Giorgio de Sant'Angelo had this movement in their shows. And so the girls that they used were, were girls that could move, you know. And so I was one of those girls, me, um, Ramona Sandez, a few other girls. And then they started using girls of color. And those girls were used to this kind of soul music movement. And so this movement, it was a dance, really. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. 
It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. And you didn't just dance, Pat. You spun. You still spin down the runway. (laughs) It is the Pat Cleveland signature. And it's what we all love about you because you just bring this joy to fashion and you're spinning and Halston's clothes are billowing around you. And I mean, who wouldn't want to wear that dress after you'd modeled it? I call myself the human flagpole. Put the fabric <laughs> on me and I'll, help and I'll fly your flag for you. You know, because, you know, clothes in a hanger is something. You may see a dress in a hanger and you say, oh God, that's terrible. But once you put it on, it just sort of has a certain way it hangs on you. Like the Halston fabrics were all cut on the bias. So they sort of had their own movement to begin with, you know, and the jerseys just felt so easy on your body that, you know, you could just feel all your feminine qualities being accentuated by how it touched the fabric. And, you know, when your skin touches fabric and, oh, it's just like your home and sort of like this little little cocoon of energy, like that they put all their energy into making this thing beautiful. It's looks like they give you petals that you didn't have before. And then you kind of like blossom into this feeling like you're like, oh my God, this feels so good. And then my spinning came because I started dancing later on with Sterling Saint-Jacques. He was like this dancer, this very beautiful, statuesque young man that I had events with, you know, that I was engaged to. And we started dancing together and this spin came from a dance that we do and these discos, like if you stand under a disco ball and you just go round and round and round, the whole room starts to swirl. I don't know if you've ever done this kind of dancing where you have a partner and when you're going round, everything seems to swirl around and just like ice skaters experience when they do those things, I ice skate too. But you know, you just, everything starts spinning. So it's sort of a sensational feeling, you know, and it doesn't, I don't plan these things, but <laughs> when I feel my audience and I hear their hearts beat, it's like the rhythm of their soul just like, it just feeds into me. And then I feel like, oh, what would they like to see? And, and then it just happens, you know, that this fabric comes to life and, and I'm just in it, you know, like 
I'm just in it like the center of a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. It's it's a sight to be seen. And our dress listeners who haven't looked it up will absolutely look it up after this because it's it's at, what you bring to the runway is absolutely wonderful. I want to talk to you about Halston, but first I just want to talk to you about Kenzo because you actually went to Japan to work with him, which I think is just a wonderful or must have been a wonderful experience. Little sweet Kenzo, you know, the quiet, beautiful, observant, and very precious because everything he saw was like flowers and beauty. And I remember sometimes we go on holiday together in other places, but in Japan, it was the entourage of all the models that he had in his show. And some of them are very famous now photographers. And Ellen Von Wurst, and she's like a, a very famous photographer now. And and she and I and some other beautiful, beautiful boys and uh, girls, Japanese, Sayoko. Sayoko was a very famous Japanese model. Um, she was married to another designer, but she loved Kinzo because when she first came to Europe, she was a uh, modeling for him. And, oh, there's a history of wonderful models that began with Kinzo, but the, his style, you know, what he brought, he brought a Parisian Japanese style. And so when we went to Japan, we traveled all and every city. We went in bullet trains. We we ended up at Mount Fuji. We went to spas and stayed in those beautiful Japanese houses with the sliding doors. And we'd have sleep on the mats and the floors in one big room all together. Like, you know, it was like going to camp, Kinzo camp. <laughs> <laughs> and we drink sake and eat Japanese food and and everything was so um, authentic and classic. And we went to the opera house and we'd see Ebiso, the, the, the famous Japanese kabuki artist, and we worked with Shiseido. So we were able to sit with these kabuki artists and while they were doing their makeup, and it was such a ceremony to watch them. And we'd sit around and learn things. It was like visiting a guru or something, watching these kabuki artists transformed from men into women and it was the most beautiful experience and Kinzo so playful oh my gosh you know there was so much playfulness with him and then we'd all come back with these experiences of traveling with Kinzo through Japan and then that would go into the show you know and his shows were game changers right I mean especially compared to what you had been doing previously in the 60s like what Kenzo brought to the runway was completely different and new. Well, what happened in Paris was at the time there were still the couturier houses where the shows were silent. But I remember one of the very first shows that was sort of like, it was done in a circus uh, in Paris, which is a famous circus and it's still there now. I can't recall the name. And But um, they took this entire sphere of energy space. And who were the designers? Kinzo and Terry Mugler. And they were the two designers that did this first big show. They shared this space. And Kenzo created a show where it was like a musical. And Terry Mugler created the show like it was in space ladies, like gorgeous space ladies. And the music was so ethereal and different. And the space was so grand and the music was just booming and the atmosphere, the lighting was it was a really theatrical, like if you would go uh, to the theater in a astronomical, beautiful way and go up to see the stars and kind of thing like that. It was just beautiful. So 
beyond any show that I had ever been in. The very first time, 1971, I believe these shows started to become real shows in Paris. Show, like lights, music, and theme, you know, theme, like storytelling. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall during this period, Cass, or better yet, part of Pat's entourage (laughs) at any given part of this decade, whether it be in Paris, New York City, or Tokyo. I know. I can only dream of what it would have been like to have been (laughs) present at some of these momentous occasions and events. I was actually particularly touched by her relationship with Kenzo. I, like so many others, was devastated at the news that he passed away this past October after contracting COVID-19. He was undeniably a trailblazing designer in more ways than one, and we will absolutely dedicate an entire episode to his life and legacy in the near future. She also, of course, worked with Andre Leon Talley and Terry Mugler, who are two fashion icons that we've just lost. You and I actually had to have a phone conversation about this last night because yes. we were both so upset. <laughs> yes, it's devastating. Both died at the age of 73 years old. Both brought so many contributions to the fashion industry and fashion history in so many ways. So expect more to come on both of those those um, individuals in the future on the season, dress listeners. Yes, for sure. But also please remember that on Thursday, we're actually going to pick up our conversation with Pat about another one of her beloved friends, the American fashion designer extraordinaire Halston. And while the recent Netflix series, if some of you have seen it on Halston, chose not to highlight their particular friendship, Pat is going to share some of her intimate memories of this enigmatic designer. So until then, a couple days from now, may you please take Pat's advice and remember to dream and dream big next time you get dressed. Dress listeners, we are so excited to be back for Dress Season 5, April. Can you believe it? I still remember being timid baby podcasters who had to practice each episode before recording. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we would practice, practice, practice. Now we just get (laughs) on and talk to each other. (laughs) So, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And dress listeners, of course, we would not be here without you. We cannot thank you enough for being with us all these years and for being the spark that keeps our fashion history flames alight. And we are very excited about the upcoming season. We're going to be covering so many topics. Cass, you and I have pretty much planned out like months and months and months of like what's coming up. So we're going to be talking about everything from corsets to blue jeans to indigo dye. And we have a ton of exciting interviews with fashion historians, makers, and insiders to share with you. So just saying 2022 might be our best season yet. And as always, dress listeners, we love hearing from you. Please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you always find images to accompany each week's episode. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. Oh, and I also want to give a special shout out to Mark Rhodes for facilitating both of our interviews now with Pat. Thank you so much, Mark. And also, as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dressed and more Pat coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.